it's, uh, it's fun chatting with you. Welcome to the InVino Fab Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. We're co-host for the InVino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are tales that need to be told about women, wine, work, and what's happening in the world. This podcast was created to have a chat about a few of these things and more. Tune into this podcast to learn and share as we talk about passion projects, recent reads, and random wine facts. Hi, welcome. We are back with another In Vino Fab podcast, and we have a great guest who I'm going to introduce. Um, her name is Kristen Rowe. Kristen Rowe is a leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion practices within the child welfare sector in Ontario, Canada. She has earned graduate degrees in adult education, community development, and social work. Is through the lessons taught to her within grassroots social justice movements that have been the most profound in her knowledge and understanding of inequities in systems and structures. Kristen navigates the world through much privilege, but also through the experiences living with bipolar disorder. She is committed to sharing her lens of anti-stigma towards mental illness and also in her role as an ally. In her spare time, Kristen has been known to swim large bodies of water for social justice causes close to her heart and is in love with her rambunctious Portuguese water dog, Desi. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. It's great to have you join us for In Vino Fat. You heard her magnificent bio. She's done so many cool things. And for those of you who know, I'm kind of on this beat where I ask people about their career and life changes because maybe I'm pondering a few of my own. So this is really self-serving and it's fine. Uh, we're hopefully going to learn a little bit on the way. So is there anything um, that we've highlighted? Actually, no, we should highlight something that you probably don't brag enough about. You swam the English Channel in 2010. What an amazing feat. I did. And it was my excuse to get out of going to your wedding. Clearly. That was a, <laughs> that a set. Like, I'll take a note for you, anyone who wants to do some feet like that. But this is not your first open swim. Like, you've been an open, I love lakes, open water swimmer for years. Yeah, it, it has been a love of mine since I was a teenager. Always, always loving to swim and, and, you know, grew up competitively swimming. But it was really not until I had the opportunity to do an open water swim as a teenager that I, I found my, my niche of, of uh, a real passion of mine. And yeah, I had done, um, I've been living in the East coast and uh, of Canada and I did a few different versions of the crossing of the Northumberland Strait, which is a body of salt water in between Prince Edward Island, Canada's smallest province shout out to the Islanders and uh, New Brunswick. So I'd done a few of those swims, a single and a double. And then while living briefly in South Africa, I did a swim from Robben Island to Cape Town. So because there's sharks there. Yeah. I had to sign a waiver. Didn't know that as I was literally walking into the water. Um, and there was a shark repellent on the boat, which I thought would suffice, but apparently you still need to sign a waiver. Forget like diving with sharks or shark diving as they have um, in South Africa. Um, you actually swim with them. So, and when you open water swim, you're not wearing like a wetsuit. You open water swim in like what I call a typical Speedo swimsuit. You'd race yeah. yeah. The, the, the rules around open water swimming are intended to stem or respect the initial swimmer who made it across the English Channel first and that was Matthew Webb and so you're you're supposed to honor that of only swimming in in a traditional you know one piece bathing suit so it can't can't extend down your arms the suit can't extend down your legs you can't wear two suits can't wear a wetsuit so just you know your regular old speedo so this baffles me. So I, I too am a swimmer, but I'm the kind of swimmer that had lots of lines on the, uh, the bottom where I could see there's no other wild things in there, ships or other sharks uh, coming at me. So what, what prompted you to leave the pool to go open water swimming? It's better. It's, it's, more, <laughs> it's just better. It's more exciting. It's a, it's a feeling of freedom and in particular, I love salt water. So I would take salt water over a lake any day, uh, as beautiful as some of the lakes are, uh, especially in North America. It's the, it's the buoyancy of salt water. And so when you can get into a groove, I have felt like I'm flying sometimes when I'm swimming in the waves. And so it's, 
it's a, a feeling unlike any other. And even when I've had to train in the pool in order to just get the mileage in leading up to an open water swim, I've, I've never really loved it. <laughs> it's just, just to do it for the means to an end. Right. So it's kind of like the freedom of, I guess, running outside versus on a treadmill versus, yeah. yeah, Like there's some other ways of seeing like being in the nature and everything. I would say a lot of it is mental though, because, um, in mental in the sense, it's a mental fight, uh, not mental health and wellness, but maybe Mm -hmm. that too. But, um, some of it I'm thinking because you're in the water, sometimes your swims are eight, 16 plus hours. Like how long did it take you to swim the Yeah, the English Channel was the longest, hardest swim I had ever attempted. And it was, my crossing was 16 hours and 40 minutes. So in that particular swim, it was not great weather. It was raining at one point during the day. The waves were moderately high and I got quite nauseous. And so I was quite literally throwing up in the water Um, and I was doing it in between strokes, which just sounds gross, but, um, I ended up falling behind, uh, the intended track, uh, according to the current. So it was, it was, you know, I got, I got off track. Uh, I was veering in a different way. It was, you know, it's, it's like falling off the treadmill and then trying to hop back on while it's still running. Um, so that was that took longer than we anticipated, but that's also what the unique beauty and curse of open water swimming is, is that what I love about the camaraderie of that community is that most people actually don't really care how long it took you. It's just, did you attempt it? Did you have fun? Did you do it? Did you go for it? Um, there are swimmers that are slower than me that came out two hours quicker than me in their swim and vice versa. Um, you know, there's, there's some swimmers that, you know, would out swim me in workouts and they, they had a longer swim. They had a 19 hour swim. And so it's, it's just, it's, you know, what nature hands you that day and the combination of what you're training and the weather it's, it's pretty, it's pretty unique. Yeah, I guess as a PSA, um, England, you're not the island I'd go to of tropics and sun. So you're bound to have choppy waters. You have big boats. You said steamers were going through there. And you can- yeah, at one point I had to outswim a ferry boat in a path. It's very dramatic. I swear it'll make it to the movies, that, that part. But it was, you know, it, like I, somebody from the boat shouted down to me at one point at like hour 12 going, you're going to need to go faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for those who don't know, she cannot touch the boat at any point in time. No, no, There's no. There's water and drink or eat if she can. Um, and like, this is, a, this is not something you're like, I'm just going to show up and swim the channel. It's well-planned in advance. She was giving that. Yes. A oh yes. Yeah. Go. I had to put a deposit on a boat a year in advance. You have a crew, right. you have somebody watching you to ensure you're not breaking the rules, like hanging off the boat or, right. Um, but uh, yeah. So the, one of the crew members at that point had shouted down, you're, you're going to need to swim faster because there's a ferry boat coming your way and they don't stop for swimmers <laughs> right um, right so it's it's also I mean it's quite a workout <laughs> you need to be from a cardiovascular perspective you need to be in pretty good shape in order to be able to start sprinting after 12 hours um so I I managed to make it but it was not without challenges well if you like uh ultra marathon running meets mario kart hit the water with some challenges hey this sounds like for you uh, i think it's right no i am super impressed and the reason why i talk want to talk to you um besides being a friend of mine i, I think it's you've overcome a lot of challenges like this and i, I think um your open water swimming path it, it's kind of like a metaphor for other things you've overcome in life and you've made some just mm-hmm. interesting career and life changes. So I was like, Hey, uh, maybe we could skim your resume a little bit and give the listeners like a rundown of the fields or areas you've worked in because you're not the same person well, you were. Yeah. That's very kind, Laura, but, but you know, you're right. I have, I have not stayed on one path. Um, maybe much to my mom's chagrin. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, it, it's exciting, I guess, for some people to sort of see where my career has gone um, and not necessarily in terms of accolades and accomplishments, but just trying out different avenues. And 
I've always been up for the next challenge or for what the ride takes me in my career. So, um, yeah, I, I, swimming can be a metaphor. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Well, we met back in the day, we were undergrad, um, and residence life. And then, uh, we both kind of continued on that path, but if you want to start, I guess, from you went hmm. into, re- that was your first, one of your first full-time jobs. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, camp counselor, lifeguard, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And then, um, you know, arriving at the University of Guelph as an undergrad, a naive undergrad, and living in a residence in the first year where I had a residence assistant that, this is typical of me and probably foreshadowing, was I went, yeah, I could I could do that better, I think. <laughs> hey, those <laughs> are some great motivators for careers. So, yeah, just looking at him going, you're you've got students who are really homesick and you're not talking to them or, you know, you're, you're never around. <laughs> and so I applied and became a residence assistant. And then that's how my path got to cross with yours. Yeah. And, and then you continued on and you became full-time. You joined um, a university out East uh, mm-hmm. as a residence um, director. Is that what it was? Residence coordinator. Residence coordinator. Yeah. yeah. A live-in position where you're managing uh, residence leaders. So the next step up from, from the RA or the Dawn role. Uh, and so certainly that was, you know, that was my first post post-secondary job after I had graduated and, and I learned a lot. And then from there, you began studying and adults, education, community development. That was the field. And then you took you to South Africa. Because you swam with sharks? Yeah. (laughs) Therein lies the experience with sharks. So it was an internship opportunity um, through a university out east as well, a a larger university um, in Halifax. And they had a partnership with a research organization in South Africa that did particularly interesting work within the HIV AIDS sector and that was and still in many ways a a real passion about the ways in which those who are affected by HIV are incredibly stigmatized and um, discriminated against in many parts of the world and so I applied for that internship you know was hired but was based out of Cape Town for that internship even though there was a connection to to a Canadian university. Right. And correct me if I'm uh, wrong, but your English Channel Swim also, you raise money for women and children with HIV. Yeah. So all my open water swims, some of the organizations varied, but all my open water swims had that focus where it was raising money for those impacted by HIV, whether it was a small local nonprofit in Canada or um, ones that were working on the ground at the grassroots level in Africa. Right. And we, and we always talked, um, and I think you brought it up that you were really in favor of groups, uh, that were grassroots that were helping people do the work instead of giving things to like, we want them to learn how to farm or fish and teaching them to do. Right. And so that, that was probably my first experience really looking at something through an anti-colonial lens Mm -hmm. that it really is not, it's not about giving the person a fish and it's not about teaching the person to fish either. It's actually saying, you know what, you already know how to fish. It's lack of resources Mm -hmm. or lack of power that's preventing you from achieving your goals and dreams. And so it was really only those organizations that were doing it through that lens that I was raising money for. And I, and I learned a lot from those organizations as well. That's great. And um, are there any that you care to uh, kind of share to, if people are interested to learn more about, we'll probably include them in some of the show notes maybe. Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. Absolutely. Um, and then, um, so you finished your degree and I believe you started working, um, you left higher ed and went to healthcare. And diversity. Yeah, well, I mean, I really left higher ed. I didn't think I would leave it for a long time, but I did leave higher ed then in order to take that internship in South Africa. That really, what I was noticing about myself was that my real central passion was through a social justice lens and to be doing work within communities. And not that higher ed cannot do that or does not do that, but I was not experiencing it that way at that time. And I wanted to be doing more work through an anti-racism lens 
at the time really dating myself now, but at the time it was really more talked about as cultural competence. So we've, mm-hmm. we've progressed in our language around that, but I was wanting to do social justice work. There's no two ways around it. And so I, you know, sort of just went for that opportunity in South Africa and it ended up really paving a path for me of doing things around an anti-stigma lens doing things within health and adult education. That was my, when I did a a master's of adult education, it was a focus on community development, but my thesis was looking at indigenous health facilitators in West Africa and the skills uh, that they were using in order to teach HIV in low resource areas. And so far more transformative than what I was actually seeing in Canada at the time. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like your applied experience, like your on the ground experience in South Africa really informed where you took that research, because I think you're right. You may not have witnessed it of where you were geographically or what you were working in at the time until you went away. Yeah. And so that, that, you know, master's work was really through that appreciative inquiry Mm -hmm. approach, um, which, you know, many people who are doing higher ed would say, oh, I do that all the time, or I know that. And so there's lots of great research around AI. Can you define appreciative inquiry for our listeners who might want to think about research in that way? So much of appreciative inquiry would be based at a community level mm-hmm. and to be looking at what is going well and what somebody's lens and experiences are telling you. And so it was not me even crafting questions by myself in order to figure out what I wanted to learn. It was the research subjects that were telling me what, what we ought to be learning through this work. And so appreciative inquiry was helping me to understand it through that. I like it. That's kind of like a anthropology does like ethnographic work and you're working with the communities and the people and the groups and the tribes to figure out what should we be asking or knowing more about or understanding as a group, this collective. Mm-hmm. It's really neat. And certainly we, I had to do a lot of due diligence from a research ethics board perspective because it was you know, human subjects in a developing country. And I am coming from a North American Eurocentric institution and mm-hmm. I am white. And so you had, I had to be very careful with that. And so appreciative inquiry was, was helping me to do it in such a way that it was, it was not compromising the ethical principles of the work. Yeah, the research um, ethics board is really important in Canada. We call it the Institutional Research Board in the U.S. Same thing. We have to look at how we work with human subjects. And I think that's really critical because it's not just studying for the sake of uh, these people aren't just the thing that we're observing or coming in to ask questions and then leaving. Like we have to think about what's going to be the impact of us um, asking some of these questions and having people reflect and talk about their experience because um, although it, whether it's um, going to another place or asking people questions that are very personal, it impacts them a lot. You have to think about what that means and mm-hmm. how to scaffold that. And, and certainly that's, a, that's an ever-present conversation that we are having in my work today around continuing to consult people who are often at the margins of society and yet not doing much about it. And so you, you can hear the statement used at community level saying, stop, can stop consulting us and actually just work with us and, and let's get some stuff done because we've been consulted and researched to death. Right. So, so we'll fast forward in your resume and say like you left um, like healthcare and diversity programs um, out East and you came back to um, Ontario where you are now and you've jumped into a whole other field called social work. I did. So for, for a period of time, I was still in healthcare and I was doing particular work at a mental health hospital that, um, you know, I am proud to have been associated with and does particularly progressive work around Mm anti-stigma and, and as well within their staff demographics, because it's sad to say, but often health professionals can be some of the most stigmatizing people when treating those who are impacted by mental health and addictions. So I had that um, experience. And then, you know, I certainly wouldn't say that a job landed in my lap, but uh, a posting landed in my lap by someone who who thought 
this is written for you, you know, kind of thing. And so then I jumped into another sector. And, and so now I'm working in child welfare or in, in some spaces, it's often referred to as child protection um, or child family, family services. Mm-hmm. So you, you could take a lot from your different experiences and apply them, it sounds like, into where you are now. Like there's lots of transferable skills or what are some things that you probably, the foundation of your first career or first role kind of prepared you for now that you're like, huh, I didn't know I'd have to use X skill or talent most often, but this really came in handy. Well, I laugh often about how much I have actually learned as a residence assistant in my undergrad, and I'm thankful that it began all of that work uh, and passion around social justice really, I mean, I probably was very interested in high school. In fact, I know I am, but really it was the University of Guelph that gave me that foundation. I still refer to that learning in my brain weekly. I still think of the committees that I sat on, the principles of working together, of um, holding space with one another, of planning, um, you know, when you're planning events, you know, I think of, um, you know, International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia, which just occurred. We were doing that at Guelph, but is it a room full of allies planning that? Uh, is the community welcome to do that? What does the community want to do about that? Does it feel tokenized and symbolic at the surface level? Or does it, is it actually um, instigating some change in your community by bringing light to some of these days of significance? All of those principles <laughs> were, were being talked about at at that undergrad level and I still refer to that because that is much of my work is is being part of committees uh, with equity seeking groups yeah and we we should say our undergrad uh, Guelph hat tip at the time was very empowered and they did have students sitting at the table almost every table there was rarely a committee a hiring group an ad hoc thing happening without a student representation both undergrad grad it wasn't just token but was a good chunk of uh, people sitting around that table asking the questions making decisions and um, so that, that's something very different than I see um, at other institutions I've worked at in Canada and the US so I think it's um, a good foundation of that what you're, you're trying to say as an RA you didn't have to document everything that you have to document now like when in doubt <laughs> write it out do we not oh, know this no, that's still welcome <laughs> to child welfare everything is um, or ought to be uh, <laughs> written down and we are you know uh, struggling with what our own identity in child welfare is because we are heavily compliance based mm. Um, and yet also we have not done a good job historically or even presently on collecting disaggregate data of the people that come into contact in child welfare. A challenge that the child welfare system in Canada is facing, and I, from, from the research I have read, I think the United States is also struggling around that as well from my understanding of reading research and articles around child welfare and that... I think we're struggling with what does that mean when we're collecting disaggregate data around especially equity-seeking groups or equity-seeking groups who are disproportionately impacted in the child welfare system. Yet, historically, we've not been collecting that data, and we know that quantifiable data is often the way systems will change. So it's sad to say, but by stories and anecdotes and communities at rallies saying you're disproportionately surveilling us, that hasn't been the um, reason for change in systems. And so we need to find a balance of that. We've got the data to back that up. We've got the facts and that we're also hearing from the community at a grassroots level as well. Right. I agree. Thanks for sharing that, Kristen. Now, let's talk a little bit about your education with your career track. You did a second master. So, like, this is back to my own, <laughs> back to my own inquiry. Yeah, no, like, um, I, as a highly educated person, um, you did one master's that I think was suitable enough, but you did a second master's completed recently in social work. Um, mm-hmm. Why? 
Right. So we live in a highly credentialized world. And so I am proud and yet also a little bit embarrassed that I play into that. And so I have sat at tables, especially in healthcare institutions, where folks who are higher up on that ladder have said, why are you here? Mm. I'm sorry, do you have a say about this patient? Do you have any authority on this? So it... It has been, a, a, my mother will tell me that she told me to go into social work when I was 18. So she is sitting high and pretty right now. <laughs> she knew <laughs> that social work would probably give me the lens and career that would satisfy me. And so she's not wrong because I don't regret doing that second master's, especially when it had somewhat of a clinical focus when um, it helped to centralize a lot of my thinking and being into um, a code of ethics that social workers are um, need to be abide by. And it has given me a lens in order to do structural anti-oppressive social work that I believe so strongly in. And so while in many ways, I probably knew a lot of work around social justice and doing things through an anti-racism approach and an anti-colonial approach, doing anti-oppressive practice in social work has helped legitimize that in my own career. And it has helped frame all that I tried to do in my career through a master's of social work. And so, you know, some people invest in real estate. I guess I invest in tuition. Um. <laughs> no, but like, I think, it, so I asked this because I think um, I knew you were sitting at tables with folks in the field that had been there for 20 to 30 years, because that's what social work does. It has people in there for a long time, or yeah. sometimes a short time because they burn out, but yeah. um, has both. you in both. Um, so, but has you in there and it's almost kind of like um, you have to, have the same credentials or speak the same vernacular or um, I don't know, did it bring you to a certain level of understanding or respect, I guess is what. Yeah. I I think you just explained it better than I did, Laura. I think that is what has helped, especially when coming into a system where people start out very young um, at direct service roles or frontline roles, uh, doing valuable work and then eventually becoming a supervisor and, and maybe a manager or director or be, you know, getting into the policy work of child welfare. But most people start at that frontline direct service role. And I did not in child mm-hmm. welfare. And so it still takes time for me to earn the respect of colleagues mm-hmm. that I actually have a role to play here in And I'm in a unique role where I am asked to challenge the status quo, to challenge the way we've always done things. And I do that through the intent to to get to equitable outcomes with the children and families that we work with. When Um, you say frontline, do you mean like someone who's doing um, like a caseworker who works like one-to-one with a family or a child. Is that what you're talking about when you say yeah, frontline? Like okay. Child protection worker, when there's a call that's been made about a concern or a worry about a child, right. it would be that particular person that would go out and make an assessment that would safety plan with a family. And so a lot of people come from that particular role mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that, but um it's often been kind of one, one path for people to do work in child welfare. And a lot of people, you're right, either burn out. Yeah. And we can t- that would be probably a whole other podcast of why yeah. that may be. And who is particularly vulnerable to burning out in the system. Uh, but then there's also people who stay in it for 30 years or, or do a similar position for their entire career. And some people really love that. I, I know that that obviously, given my career path, that hasn't been the way for me. So your, your role is um, like a coordinator or director of something? Is that what? 
So my, the title of my, of my role is a manager of equity, inclusion, and community development. So it's, it's what a great title that is. That's just, (laughs) that's just like for you right there. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I am, I am fortunate that it is, you know, I do, I pinch myself sometimes going, wow, like I've built a career on doing this work that I've been so passionate about for 20 years. And yet it, it, it doesn't come without a cost. Like there's also times where you drive home thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know if I affected change, or I think everyone hated me in that room because I had to call them into some real questions around white fragility. (laughs) Right. um, You know, I'm not, I'm not always the (laughs) well-liked person in the room. And, and I'm told by my colleagues who do this particular role, that means I'm doing a good job. (laughs) And that's got to be hard, though, because like we've talked on this podcast before and people have shared like their idea of their imposter syndrome or am I a failure or am I doing well? Like it's a barometer and it's an ongoing kind of self-assessment, personal, like it's not personal. It's also what I'm doing. Yeah. And and the damage that can be done. There's there's too much of a price to pay to sit and be comfortable in this particular work and really in any public service work. It doesn't just mean child protection. It's in healthcare, it's in mental health and in education, in criminal justice. We can't just be sitting comfortable and thinking that we've got all the answers. So you don't want people sitting on their laurels. You get this title. doesn't mean you don't have to do the work, I guess. Like that's really what you're saying. Yeah. And that it's a constant journey of of unlearning your own biases I think Mm -hmm. is is what I really try to focus on and that you know especially doing equity and inclusion work from a white identity Mm -hmm. and some people would disagree and say that there's not a role for someone who's white to do equity work and so it is an interesting conversation Um, but then my thinking and, and many of my colleagues thinking in in this work is that by only having racialized or indigenous people to be taking us through this learning and to be doing equity and inclusion work would put a lot of weight on their shoulders. And so to end racism or to even just disrupt racism has to be a white person's problem as well. And so I try to do that through understanding my own whiteness And an author that I um, have learned a lot from is Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And and I know that she's, she's quite uh, well known in the United States as well. Um, Is that you're, you're constantly in recovery of your own whiteness. And so helping colleagues understand that that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're intentionally doing harm, but you do benefit from systems that are designed for your success. Right, And for us to understand that has to be that first step in doing anti-racism work when in a white identity. Definitely. We'll put a link to her book, White Fragility, in there. It's a great book. and um, It reads well, too. Each chapter is a, is a different theme. And so it's, it's great. I know, I know some um, child welfare agencies, or at least I know a couple of them, are doing book clubs with their leadership team where they read a chapter a month and come back to discuss it on what they've learned. That's great. We'll put it in because we do have a running book list that we collect for um, our listeners. And I think, I think it's a great read. So we'll definitely um, add that. So that's a lot of work. Um, so what do you do for you? Like, cause that seems like uh, lots of mental and emotional and physical, maybe um, stuff going on with you day to day. So what do you do to, for your own kind of personal wellness and well-being to like, make sure you're not uh, yeah. <laughs> check yourself before you wreck yourself, as I say. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do believe that there's a, a real potential for burnout and that, you know, a colleague and friend of mine says, that doing anti-oppressive work, if, if you're not taking care of yourself, it'll kill you. Um, and, I, and I don't think she's intending to be overly dramatic. I think that there's a real connection to unwellness in doing anti-oppression work because you're carrying a lot of, of yuckiness. Um, but in terms of what I do for myself, so my dog is a big part of that. I now have a six-month Portuguese water dog puppy. And he's a comedian 
And so he makes me laugh and we go for a lot of walks and a lot of playtime and a lot of snuggles, although he's not really into snuggling at this point. Um, so I'm gonna have to work on that with him. He's, <laughs> he's too wriggly. Um, but you know, a, a lot of that, uh, you know, therapy or wellness co- comes from, you know, hanging out with dogs. So, so that, that works for me. I appreciate how it may not work for a lot of people. Um, I'm a, I'm a bit injured right now, but normally, um, being quite active and doing kind of high intensity interval workouts are a good sweat is always good for me. And even going to hot yoga classes and of course swimming. Mm -hmm. And then if I'll be really honest, you know, wine plays a part sometimes. I'm not, uh, I'm not proud of it, but no, well, you've came to the right podcast. That's a good segue. So is there a go-to beverage or wine that you like? That's your kind of your, when you're gathering with friends and family, you're going to bring, bring a bottle or have some of. Yeah. So, I, okay. So I will say that I, I like a lot of wine um, and a lot of different wines for different occasions, but my favorite bottle to bring for, or to enjoy in you know celebratory times or special occasions would be uh, a sparkling wine from the east coast of Canada called Nova 7 by a, a winery called Benjamin Bridge and last I checked it is the highest selling wine in the east coast of Canada and it has won the most awards so I'm not alone in saying that I love Nova 7 and it is hard to get around Christmas and New Year's. It's hard to get around holidays. And so there have been times where I have driven to several different liquor stores going, do you have Nova 7? So it's, uh, it's a good one to add to your list. It needs to be quite crisp and cold, but it is, it's lovely. <laughs> so you're saying a lot of people celebrate as well with the Nova 7. A lot of people like to say, yeah, my graduation of my Master's of Social Work, that was the wine at the table. (laughs) Nice. I like it. Now, what's an interesting thing or a little known fact about your role that people don't know that you do or that you encounter or that surprised you entering into um, social work or working with family and child services? Um, I'm not sure if it's a little known fact, but what has surprised me is how much I have learned from Indigenous leaders in this work. And it has challenged my Eurocentric A-type personality to sit back, to not always have so much on your schedule, and that's hard in this work, to listen, to do work in circles, to... Um, sit with a problem for a while before trying to solve it quickly. And much of my learning around this work has been with Indigenous leaders. Some pretty profound moments, I'd have to say, that I wouldn't even put in the category of my career. I would put in the category of some profound moments in my life have been through that learning. Like, can you give an example of one recently? So... I think it's, I think one thing that has challenged my own thinking is trusting the universe, that the universe can take care of you at times. And Indigenous leaders have taught me that. And so one particular instance was I was working with a group of foster parents in an evening setting with an Indigenous leader from nearby my community uh, in which I live. And we were talking about the role in child welfare around truth and reconciliation. So for audience that may not be aware, Canada has gone through a truth and reconciliation process uh, as an impact to the residential schools. Um, And residential schools were um, taking children from homes, primarily boys and kind of whitewashing their backgrounds and having them conform to a certain way, lots of abuse. And whatnot, yes. 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 So Canada, this again would be another podcast, but Canada often likes to think that they don't have a racism problem or that we don't have a racism problem. I need to include myself in that. And and we do. We we have a racist history. 
And so, and, and, and a lot of that has been through the residential school system. So yes, you're, you're correct. That is young children taken from their homes and placed into schools, whitewashing, um, taking the, the, you know, there's quotes that say, I'm going to take the Indian out of you. And so Canada has gone through a truth and reconciliation process. And so back to that evening of working with some foster parents and with uh, the Indigenous leader sitting next to me, we were helping those foster parents understand ways to teach their own children about Canada's history. And so one of those suggestions was the Cheney Wenjack story, mm-hmm. which was um, uh, Gord Downey was part of that. And Gord Downey is the late frontman of probably Canada's biggest rock band, The Tragically Hip. And so in Gord's later years of his life, especially when he had already been diagnosed with brain cancer and knew that his life was going to be cut short, Gord started dedicating himself to a truth and reconciliation process himself. And so he had written this book and had worked with some illustrators. And so there were quite a lot of um, curriculum that had been very helpful and and it is helpful to children around the story. And so we brought that up as, as a suggestion to the foster parents. And we were talking quite a lot about Gord Downey's role as an ally in truth and reconciliation. And I remarked in that moment to my colleague and said, "Um, why are we talking so much about Gord tonight? I don't, I don't know why we're talking about Gord Downey so much. Um, You know, let's, let's, you know, get on a different topic or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and the Indigenous leader looked at me and said, no, no, let's stay on this. This, this is helpful. And she said, the universe is just telling us that we just, you know, we need to, we need to talk more about, about his role in, um, in truth and reconciliation. And then I drove home that night. And the next morning I woke up to the news that Gord had died that evening. And I phoned her, of course, right away and said, you knew, like you knew the universe was just telling us that it was time to give space for, for Gord's role. And she said, oh yeah, the universe is rarely wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember you telling me that story and thank you. Thank yeah, you I for did tell you that. that. Yeah. Profound, right? Because it stays with me. Just to sit with the process, sit with what you're feeling compelled to learn and talk about. I think that's really important to do. And I think um, Gord, we knew, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And we knew that he was going to pass away soon. But um, so I think it's really invaluable. We'll share some links to kind of, I think, their last tour documentary. And also mm-hmm. The Path, The Secret Path, was the documentary that came out right. of that yes. book. Um, the book was to support reconciliation through awareness, education, action. And it was really eye-opening because there were still residential schools in the nineties in Canada. And that wasn't that long ago, folks, like mid nineties. I was like, what? This is. So that's, that's a great point to remind us of Laura, the last residential school that was open um, or it closed in 1996 in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. That is our lifetime. Yeah, and so I think he did well to help bring a voice and listen and have others bring their voice, I think. So, um, yeah, we'll share both. But thank you for sharing that story because I'm sure you do. Sounds like you're ever evolving and learning, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the work that you do. Um, is there ever, is there something that's coming up on the horizon or percolating a project or idea that you're working on now that you care to share about? This could be in work or life. Yeah, so... <sighs> It's so in the early stages and I can't claim it as my own idea, but I want to bring it to my community. I recently attended a, an equity and inclusion symposium in the Toronto area and it was organized and envisioned largely with a colleague of mine, Michael Bow, who does my work in another area of the province um, or does this, the same role as me. And his vision was really bringing different sectors together. And so he has such a great point about this that I'm not sure 
if it, if it's as much like this in other countries, but certainly in Canada, we like to stay in our own systems. We like to stay in our own silos and do our work and figure out our problems on our own. And the, the whole theme of that particular symposium was all the different public systems coming together to do work and to learn together through an equity and inclusion lens. And so like, what's, you know, what are the themes going on in the police system and who's working on that? And how does that impact the mental health system and who's working within mental health to do this work? And how are we all going to learn together and speak the same language to one another? And that's child welfare and education, et cetera. And it, it is doing quite well that approach in that, in that Toronto community and it, I do have that vision. I looked over at a colleague of mine who does this work in, in my community as well in Hamilton. And I said, we've got to find a way for this to work in Hamilton, for there to be artists at the symposium and child welfare professionals, equity people, community, mental health, etc. And for us all to be getting together to say, you know what, we, we have inequities in our system and you'll see that it's not that different between systems of which communities are disproportionately affected, but we've got to come up with solutions and work together. And so that's something that's percolating as to what would that look like in my community? I think that's great. I think in a lot of sectors and areas don't get out of their little bucket silo or box. And I think you're right. Like getting together on a problem or an issue or an, an idea um, rather than a, this is what we do in this discipline or domain or area of work, I think is, is great because you're not going to, you are not going to face the bigger issues um, if these systems operate beside each other and never interact. And we know that education has a role and police and legal systems have a role and policy plays a role and social, like it's all intertwined. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's not even that long ago where I would be sitting around the table. Um, there's a provincial table called the Anti-Oppression Roundtable for Child Welfare uh, folks. And so I, I, I get to represent my agency at that roundtable. But it was not that long ago that we ha- were having this conversation going, what the heck is going on in education? Like, you know, they don't know what they're doing or who are the equity folks over there or how are they approaching it? And we didn't know. And I'd have to say, they would say the same thing about us and things are starting to improve or we're starting to know each other a little bit better. We're starting to understand how education is trying to approach it or how child welfare is approaching it and what we can learn from one another. But we've got to stop thinking that we've got all the solutions sitting in our own system. I think that's sound advice for many of our listeners who probably think about that in their own field of work, their own domain or area of knowledge. Like it's not going to be looked at in a more involved way. If you're not going to cross pollinate, have different conversations, have an idea and awareness of what's happening around. I think that's really great. Yeah, um, that's something I'm thinking about for the future, how to approach that in my own community. Good. Great. Well, we wish you luck. And if you've, hey, if you figure it out, you're welcome back at any time to let us know. <laughs> Thank you. Before we wrap up, uh, can you share something that's going to bring you joy right now? So what's making you smile, laugh, or enjoy life these days? Well, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record of a dog owner, but I have to say my puppy is the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, I, it's the second dog I've owned. And so he's a very different personality as my last dog. Um, but he is the master of the head tilt. Everyone will say to me, like, <laughs> they, if you have conversations with him, his name is Desi. If you have conversations with him, he turns his head completely to the side. And then if you turn the, the inflection of your voice, he turns the head, his head to the other side, like as if he's really like listening to you of the words you're saying. And he just cracks me up every day. So I have to say he's bringing me joy. Your empath dog. I, I think that's great. Yeah. He's, he's a funny guy. <laughs> that's good. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to recommend as a resource read or um, area of action you think our listeners should go check out based on your work in um, equity, diversity, anti-oppression that you said, hey, 
Uh, we're going to give them white fragility, but is there any other things that they should go check out or learn more so, about? So thinking of uh, the folks who may be tuning in and, and who the audience might be, I did give this some thought and I, so, so it's a YouTube uh, video from the, the South African activist and writer, Sasanki M. Simong. And her TED talk is called, If a Story Moves You, Act on It. And so she, you know, I'll, I'll let listeners, you know, come to their own conclusions and, and enjoy it. But she extends on the very famous TED talk from Chimamande Ngozi Adichie of the danger of a single story. Mm. And so it's, it's nice to, to watch that one first if you haven't yet. But Sasanki reminds us that it's actually not just about storytelling that moves change and brings us to justice. And she actually even talks about the role of the audience in podcasts. When you hear something that's moving you of what to do next. Um, so I thought that that might be helpful for your audience. And she is one of my favorite writers and activists to follow and learn from. Great. We'll put the links to both of those TED Talks, but I'm looking forward to listening to that one because I am familiar with the single story. So this is great. Um, what other ways should, should and could we make movements um, to find equity and diversity in our own areas or getting connected through online? Is there anything else you'd like to recommend? Um, so the, the textbook that, oh, this sounds so academic-y, but the textbook that I am referring to a lot lately is called Anti-Oppressive Social Work, Ways of Knowing, Talking, and Doing. And it is um, edited by two professors from McMaster, Gary Dumbrell and Jun Ying Yi, of helping you really make anti-oppressive work. It doesn't necessarily have to be social work, but anti-oppressive work in your own roles in your career practical. And so there's lots of stories in the text. There's lots of approaches. There's ways to build frameworks. And so if that anti-oppressive practice really interests you, that would be a good text. And I would say a plug for a children's book for all those educators out there or parents uh, there's one written by Cindy Blackstock, who's a Canadian um, Indigenous social work professor and activist in Canada. And she wrote a children's book called Spirit Bear and Children Make History. And it's about taking the Canadian government to the Human Rights Tribunal. Great. That's a great, it's a great kids book about um, a monumental moment in Canada's history. Great. We'll definitely include those. So thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing your path, uh, your information, and what you're doing to go and fight against uh, oppression, anti-racism, and other movements that I think you're definitely involved in your social justice work. Um, come back. If you've uh, solved some problems, we need to have some. <laughs> always learning. Always oh. learning, Laura. I like it. Well, thanks again uh, for taking time out of your schedule to chat with the In Vino Fab podcast. We appreciate it for all that you've shared. We'll leave links to resources, reads, information, and how to get in touch with Kristen should you want to learn more or connect. And you'll find us on soundcloud.com at InVinoFab or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, cheers.